we're in the book of Revelation, and so I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 16. I did uh, put on the back table uh, the, the overview of the book of Revelation. It's just one sheet on the front of the sheet. gives you the chapter content of the entire book of, of Revelation. Um, and so pick up one of those handouts, if you'd like, on your way out tonight. Ever, uh, when we started in chapter 4... Um, we, we are talking about, from chapter 4 to chapter 22, future events. In fact, chapter 4 and verse 1, uh, we read, I will show you things which must be hereafter. So we have a real distinct marking there that this is now going to be something that's uh, yet hap- to happen, yet in the future. But as John writes, and if you read that first uh, verse, and I heard a great voice, we've been noticing all the way from chapter 4 that things are in the past tense in English. Uh, It's called a prophetic perfect tense, and that is uh, he he is talking about something as if it had already happened with continuing results. So each of the seven angels here is described as one who poured out his vial of God's wrath on the earth. It's a literary technique in the Bible that describes future events that are so certain that they're described as things that have already taken place. And so that'll help us. They're referred to in the past tense. So uh, they're, they're, they're as certain as something that already happened, but they haven't yet happened. I'm glad God's word is like that. He tells us things that absolutely will happen. And there are people who make promises today uh, don't get me started on politics, but you'll, you'll hear them say something and you'll never see it come through. Whatever God says, you will see fulfilled. And so as we go through the book of Revelation, uh, that's, a, that's a, a certainty as we read. Well, God, first of all, tells these seven angels to, to begin their task. The title of the message, The Seven Bowls of God's Wrath. In verse 1, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. The word great appears ten times in chapter 16. It's a great chapter. Uh, Our use of the word hyper is used much like the Greek word megalos, which is great. Uh, We use the word hypersensitive to mean somebody that's overly sensitive, hyperactive to somebody who's bouncing off the walls. That's a a prefix that we use. And so we think of the word great as that in this chapter. It's not just something in size or in volume. Uh, It it can be something loud or large, but it can be something also that's intense or terrible. If you go through the chapter, there's a great voice in verse 1, and we see a great voice again in verse 17. A great heat in verse 9. The great river Euphrates in verse 12. The great day of God Almighty in verse 14. A great earthquake, 18. A great city, verse 19. Great Babylon, also in verse 19. Great hail in verse 21. And an exceeding great plague in verse 21. So John hears a great voice. It comes out of the temple. Well, the word temple, we mentioned the last time we were here in Revelation 15, is the word naas, and it describes not the tabernacle, but the, the, just the holy of holies, the holy of holies that's uh, part of that temple. It's the same temple that was described in, in chapter 15. And, and when he's talking here, he's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about the true tabernacle, 
the one which the Lord pitched and not man. That's an interesting study that, that is, uh, the Lord has a tabernacle that has been set up in heaven. God showed Moses out of that heavenly tabernacle, uh, or what that heavenly tabernacle looked like when they were on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 26, verse 30, the Lord said, And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. The heavenly tabernacle is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 2. Hebrews 8, 1 finishes by talking about who Jesus is. And then he says he is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. The only one that the Lord set up was the one in heaven the, of which the, the earthly tabernacle was copied. Um, Jesus also compared uh, the priests in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 8. And then he says, who served unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for here a sea saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. One other reference, there are several in scripture, Acts chapter 7 verse 44. Stephen is preaching his message. And he refers to the fact that God showed Moses the tabernacle in heaven so that he could use it as a pattern for the one here on earth. Acts 7.44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. And so this, this great voice that's coming from heaven, that's uh, coming from that temple, is from the Holy of Holies, it must be the voice of God. God tells the seven angels what to do. He tells them to go your ways. Each angel is going a different way. He's going on a specific task that the Lord has given him to pour out his wrath upon the earth. Different targets of that wrath. He tells them pour out the vials of, wrath of, of the wrath of God upon the earth. And they're being sent on God's mission. And as, as such, they're going with his authority. His, he authorized the work. He enables them. He empowers them to do that work. This is a divine task. As you think about the wrath of God being poured out, a lot of people don't like to think about that. We, we, we like to push that from our minds. But God is, is not going to let sin go unpunished. He did punish our sins in the person of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. But for the unconverted, that wrath of God will fall. It will fall on the earth. And so it's coming as a divine task. It's, it's without question, it's the right thing to do. This is God's wrath as consequential punishment. Uh, the wrath is just. The punishment is deserved. When Abraham was asking God to spare the city of Sodom, uh, Lot lived there, and God agreed to spare the city if, how many righteous people at the end of that uh, talking back and forth, how many people? Ten, okay? If ten righteous people were found. And he recognized and verbalized to God at that point in their conversation, saying, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He knew that. God always does what's right. Some people see similarities between the seven trumpet judgments and these seven bowl judgments, vile judgments. 
But the first four trumpets affect only a third of the vegetation, a third of the sea is turned to blood, a third of the waters are poisoned by that star that's called wormwood that hits the, the, the waters. The fifth and sixth trumpets sound, and a third of the mankind is slain by an army. So the bold judgments, on the other hand, are affecting the entire world, not just a third of the population. I quoted John MacArthur when we were in chapter 15, who said that this word for bowls, and I've always pictured kind of a pitcher that is poured out. And in, in that, you have to be, you're only as slow as the spout. You've been to a, a, a restaurant where the waitress pours a little bit faster than the spout has room to pour the water or whatever you're drinking. And here, I, I've thought of that as a, as a vial, is the, is the King James word here. Or I thought of a pitcher. Uh, but the word bowl, according to John MacArthur, is, is not like a pitcher. Uh, it is more a shallow saucer. And the contents of that shallow bowl would be poured out like a flood, all of the contents at once. And so that's the picture that's going on here. John Wolverd writes, the judgments being poured out are greater, more severe, more intense than anything that has happened in the preceding events. So this is different than the seven trumpet judgments. It is more extensive. It is the they are the final bowls of God's wrath poured out on the earth. Let's watch and see each bowl as it's poured out on the earth uh, as we go from chapter, uh, verse 2 through the rest of the chapter. The first bowl is in, in verse 2. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon men, upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped the image. The judgment is described as noisome and a grievous sore. Uh, this word sores is used, is used three times in the New Testament, twice in this chapter, here in verse 2, and then again in verse 11 in chapter 16. These sores come during the fifth bowl of judgment. So here on the, on the first bowl and the fifth bowl. And then the other place that it's used in the New Testament, interestingly, is Luke chapter 16, verse 21, when it says that the dogs came and licked the sores of Lazarus. Not a pleasant thought, but these are the sores that are, that are typified by this word in the Greek. It's also used by the translators of the Old Testament, in the Greek translation, it's called the Septuagint, to describe the plagues that were poured out on the Egyptians, the boils that they had. So that's the idea. Strong's Concordance defines a sore as an ulcer. As you read about ulcers today, it's a painful sore that's slow to heal, sometimes recurs. And they can appear in the body, like in, inside the body, like in your stomach or on the skin. Well, these sores are described as being noisome. That's the Greek word kakos, which means painful, and grievous, paneros, which means malignant. And so these sores, these boils, these ulcers are painful and they're malignant. Notice the recipients of the judgment. The sores fell upon the men who had the mark of the beast and upon them who worshiped the image of the beast. When it says that they fell upon them, it means that they showed up on those who had the beast mark and on those who worshiped the image of the beast. Same people. The fact that this first bowl judgment falls on those who had the mark of the beast and worshiped the image assures us that these judgments that are poured out here take place in the last half of the seven uh, years of tribulation, the last three and a half years. 
Revelation 13, 14 tells us about those who made the image and set it up to be worshipped. That was in the middle of the tribulation. And so this has to happen afterwards. Walford writes, almost everyone seems to comply with the demand that all men worship the beast and receive the mark. The vile judgment, therefore, follows this edict. The only ones who escape the judgment are those who refuse to obey the edict of the beast, the few individuals who trust Christ in those evil days. And yes, there will be those who refuse the mark of the beast who will um, be uh, uh, in the tribulation time. Let's go to the second bowl, and this is in verse 3. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. So the judgment here is a bowl that's poured out upon the sea, that is the salt waters of the earth. The effect of the judgment, the sea became as the blood of dead. You notice man is in italics there. So it's death blood. This is a universal judgment. All the seas are affected. Lehman Strauss writes, I believe there will be a literal plague which will affect the seas. John Walverd, from that term, and it became as the blood of a dead man, uh, he writes, it is possible that the sea does not become literally human blood, but that it corresponds to it in appearance and loathsomeness. Well, as a result, every living soul or creature of the sea will die. All fish, all marine animals, everything living in the sea will die. We come to the third bowl, verses 4 through 7. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be and shalt be, because thou hast judged us. And they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are, worth, they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. These are severe judgments. It's not pleasant to read about. But there is a reward for those who read and study the book of Revelation. And so with that, we'll continue. The judgment here is the bowl poured out on the rivers and fountains of waters. This would include all the freshwater sources of the earth, lakes, rivers, springs, anything other than the seas. The effect is that they too become blood. John writes about another angel who joins in saying that this punishment is right. The angel is referred to as the angel of the waters. It appears that angels have jurisdiction over different areas. This angel of the waters confesses that God's judgment is righteous. It's right for God to turn this water to blood. He starts with the premise that God is righteous. He addresses the Lord saying, thou art righteous. It would follow because he is righteous that everything he does is right. It's just. He includes in his statement, this angel, the eternality of God, which art and wast and shalt be. This emphasizes the fact that God is righteous, he always has been righteous, and he will forever be righteous. 
He will never do anything unjust. What a God we serve. Now he explains the logic of God's justice. It's right for him to turn this water into blood because evil men have shed the the blood of the saints and prophets. So God has given them blood to drink and punishment. Wolverd says, Even as the saints are worthy of rest and reward, so the wicked are worthy of divine chastening and judgment. Another angel who's speaking from the altar in heaven adds his voice in praise. He praises God for his omnipotence. We see that in the name the Lord God Almighty. And this second angel concurs with the first angel by saying, True and righteous are thy judgments. We read of the fourth bowl in verses 8 and 9. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men, unto him, speaking of the sun, to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. The judgment increases the intensity of the sun's heat. Now the fourth trumpet judgment diminished the light of the sun, the moon, and the stars by a third of their power. But this judgment causes men to be scorched with the great heat. The sun was created to give light to man. We sang of it in praise to God in one of our hymns tonight. It's necessary for plant life, which sustains food, which we need. The Bible in Matthew 5:45 says that God makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. In these final days of judgment, the sun will only be shining on the evil with this intense heat. Those who are around the throne who were martyred for their faith during the tribulation have a different promise that we read in Revelation 7:16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. The second and third bowls of wrath destroyed both salt water and fresh water. Can you imagine trying to survive the intensity of this burning heat without water? It'll cause great thirst. It'll result in great suffering. As a result of men being scorched by the heat of the sun, what will they do? This is incredible to me. The very God who's punishing them for sin, for rebellion, they turn against him and blaspheme more. They blaspheme the name of God. To blaspheme means to revile, to speak evil of, to defame. Speaking evil of his name is speaking evil of of who he is. His name represents his character through scripture. This shouldn't surprise us. Lehman Strauss writes, if a man rejects the kindness and the love of God, judgment will hardly change his heart. We come to the fifth bowl in verses 10 and 11. And the fifth bowl, fifth angel poured out his vial upon the sea of the beast, or the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not for their deeds. 
The judgment is poured out on the seat of the beast. The word seat there is thronos. It's his throne. It's where he's ruled from. It's not a worldwide darkness. The world will still be suffering from the intense heat of the sun. The image of the beast is in the temple of Jerusalem. That may be where the throne of the Antichrist or the beast is. Some think it will be Rome. Others say it might be Babylon. But it will be on his throne. His kingdom, that is those who follow and worship the beast, was full of darkness. They, the ones in that kingdom of darkness, suffered severe pain. The pain was so intense it caused them to gnaw on their tongues. The pain in their sores, the same word we saw before, caused them to blaspheme the God of heaven. Again, man's response, they wouldn't repent of their deeds. When we come to this verse, this is the last reference that says they would not repent in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2.21, Jezebel was given a chance to repent and she repented not. In the sixth trumpet judgment, two million, a two million man army destroyed a third of the population of the earth with fire, smoke, and brimstone. And it says they would not repent. Revelation 9, 20 and 21. We just saw the fourth angel poured his bowl of wrath in verses 8 and 9. And men were scorched with the great heat and they blasphemed the name of God. And he was the one who was sending the plagues. The fifth angel sees the same response. They chew on their tongues in pain, and yet they will not use those tongues to repent of their sin. The chapter ends with men still blaspheming God in Revelation 16, 21, after the plague of hail. With all of God's wrath being poured out on the sins of mankind, man still blasphemes God with an unrepentant heart. William Newell used to say, if men are not won by grace, they will never be won. The sixth bowl is mentioned in verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. The judgment came on the Euphrates River, the same river that the Tigris and Euphrates, between which the Garden of Eden was found. The result was that this river dried up. The river that would hinder the kings of the east to access that final battle against Israel will be removed. The identity of who these kings of the east are is, is under much debate. Listen to what John Walford writes in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And this is one thing where I say, well, if you don't agree with me on this one, that's fine. There are a lot of people that disagree. Uh, there, he says, there has been endless speculation about the kings from the east, with many expositors trying to relate them to some contemporary leaders of their generation. A survey of 100 commentaries of the book of Revelation reveals at least 50 interpretations of the identity of the kings of the east. So... Nobody really is certain. The simplest and perhaps the best way to explain who the kings of the East are are that they're kings of the Orient. They'll join in the final war that's known as the Battle of Armageddon. The preparation for the final bowl of God's wrath is seen in verses 13 through 16. 
And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now again, John is describing things as he sees them. It's very difficult for us to picture and for artists to depict what this is talking about. Verse 14, for they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole earth to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. The three spirits are demons. They're called unclean spirits. So they're demonic spirits. Notice they came out of the mouths of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. One demon out of each of these three individuals' mouths. The phrase, like frogs, is most likely taken as to how they look, their appearance. But it could be that they, they leaped like frogs from the mouths of these Three. And these three are the members of the, we call that the unholy trinity. This is the first time in Revelation where we see all three of these members in one verse. So these three demonic spirits that proceed from the beast, the false prophet, and Satan will work miracles. The word here is simeon. It's a word we've seen before. It's translated with the word signs, wonders, or miracles. And these signs that they work will persuade all the kings of the earth to come and fight in the battle of that great day of God Almighty. All the kings of the world will gather against Israel. The word for battle here is a word that the New American Standard Bible translates as the war. And so we get our word polemic from that Greek word. And so when we think of a battle, we think of one, one conflict. But this is an ongoing conflict. There will be several battles, in a, a series of battles in this war. And so think of Armageddon as a series of battles. It will be a lengthy war. It will end at the second coming of Christ, his return. Now the word Armageddon comes from uh, the word Har, which is mountain or a series of mountain, ridge, a ridge of mountains, and Megiddo. The mountain is near the city of Megiddo or this ridge. The valley extends from Mount Carmel to the southeast. It's called different things in scripture. It's known as the plain of Esdraelon or the valley of Jezreel. It is a, it is a perfect place for war. It's a strategic place historically for commerce. It's on a route between uh, Damascus and Egypt. And because of its importance, it is also a place where many battles have been fought in history. It'll be the stage of the final conflict on Earth. It's located on the Via Maris, uh, Latin for the way of the sea. It runs down through uh, through the land of Israel. Walvert in the Bible Knowledge Commentary tells us why Satan will use these demons to gather the kings of the earth to fight against Israel. 
He writes, Satan, knowing that the second coming of Christ is near, will gather all the military might of the world into the Holy Land to resist the, the coming of the Son of Man, who will return to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.4, though the nations may be deceived in entering into the war in hope of gaining world political power, the satanic purpose is to combat the armies from heaven, introduced in chapter 19 at the second coming of Christ. So things in these last chapters as we move on will really start to intensify. Here the Lord says he will come as a thief. Revelation 16, verse 15. Remember, this is a reference not to the rapture, but for the second coming. Walver tells us, just as Christians are not to be surprised by the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, so believers at the time of the second coming will be anticipating his return. Those Jewish believers, Gentile believers who are surviving, blessing is promised to the one who is prepared for the coming of the Lord by being attired in the righteousness or clothing which God himself supplies. We come to the seventh bowl, the last bowl in God's judgment, verses 17 through 21. The seventh angel pours the bowl of God's wrath into the air. <clears throat> and the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Can you think of another time when God said, It is done. It is finished at Calvary. The payment was made. This judgment need not be faced by anyone. God offers his grace, eternal life through his Son. But here he will say, after all of his pouring out of his wrath, it is done with this final. A great voice from the temple of heaven, specifically from the throne. We saw the same wording in verse 1 and made the argument that it was from God's voice. I believe God is the one speaking here. And he says, it is done. Remember, the prophetic perfect. This is a future event, but it is as good as done. God will do what he says he will do. His word is true, and everything that he has said prophetically will come to pass just as he said. Walbert says it is the final act of God preceding the second coming of Christ. Notice the judgment in the seventh bowl of wrath. Verse 18. We'll read verses 18 through 20. Here, a great earthquake and the results. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of, all of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And as the last dregs will be poured out. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. This great city that's divided into three parts, some say is the city of Jerusalem. It's described as dividing the land, dividing from the north from the south, and then the, the, the uh, two seas, the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, being joined by the rivers that come out from Jerusalem. But others say that... Uh, uh, this is not, uh, those who say that, that it's Jerusalem, uh, Wearsby, uh, Newell. Others believe that this is Babylon. Babylon will be the final city of the beast's one world empire, 
We'll read more about it in chapter 17 and 18. Um, uh, Walvert and Phillips lean toward this being the city of Babylon that's destroyed or divided into three parts. All the cities of the Gentiles fell. The, the verb there for nations is the Gentiles. All the cities of mankind. Babylon came in remembrance before God. Every island fled away. Every mountain was gone. And then in verse 21, there's great hail that falls. There fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. Every stone about the weight of a talent. Remember, a hailstone is made of ice, but a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Notice, notice it's out of heaven, meaning God is the source of this hail, and also it's made just like hailstones today. They're from God. But here, every hailstone weighs a talent. And the talent was a measure of weight describing what a, a, a normal man could be able to carry, the maximum amount. So anywhere between 75 and 100 pounds. Man blasphemed God because of this plague of hail. The plague was exceeding great. Those words mean violently powerful. As Pharaoh's heart was hardened when God brought the plagues to Egypt, so too will the wicked men continue their, harden, their hearts, hardening their hearts toward God. Even in this final outpouring of his wrath upon sin, Lehman Strauss writes, Many people marvel at such descriptions of the severity of God. I marvel at the unconcern and wickedness in men's hearts. You look around and you say, what would it take? What would it take for people to turn to Christ? And we say it takes the grace of God. Calvary is the answer. Jesus paid the price. And all of the judgments of God will not bring repentance to mankind. Walvard writes, The uttered perversity of human nature, which will reject the sovereignty of God in the face of such overwhelming evidence, confirms that even the lake of fire will not produce repentance on the part of those who have hardened their hearts against the grace of God. If you have rejected God's grace, I hope you will stop and pay attention to the fact that God one day will pour out his wrath on the earth because of man's willful disobedience, his sin, and that you'll come to Christ in faith the one who took your place, he died for your sin. Come, trust him as your Savior and Lord. Christians, if we read these words and we say we believe the literal interpretation of the scriptures, we know the Bible is true, these prophecies of God's judgment will one day be finished. They will be accomplished then our hearts should be burdened more than ever before to pray more fervently, to witness more boldly so that we would rescue others from God's righteous punishment on their eternal souls. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that as we go through these words in the revelation of Jesus Christ that John penned, we won't leave them without a greater burden 
for those who are lost. And a greater wonder at your plan of the ages, that you offered salvation so freely, the gift of your son on Calvary's cross. And I pray that we would continue to give that glorious gospel that men have been giving since the resurrection of Christ, and that we would see others come to know him who alone can give eternal life and rescue us from the punishment that we deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.